You are listening to a podcast from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. I'm your host, Tracy White. If you have questions for our guest after the broadcast today, please email us at asksonce at uab.edu. Today, we are honored to have Dr. Pat Speck with us to discuss trauma-informed care. Dr. Speck is a family nurse practitioner specializing in forensic nursing. Her research focuses on the traumatic health reaction to violence. Thanks, Dr. Speck, for being here. We've been excited to have this discussion with you. Thank you for having me. So I've done a lot of reading after I spoke with you for our planning um, meeting, um, and I learned a lot about this topic. But can you share with our listeners sort of what is meant by that phrase, trauma-informed care, because I hadn't heard it before? Well, trauma-informed care is the notion that trauma is a universal experience of all human beings. And we've seen studies that started early um, in the 30s and even more today that are linking trauma to health outcomes. So I've heard you mention the physiology of trauma. Is that what you mean by that, by that kind of concept? It is. If we look at um, what people say are traumatic, um, it might be that they lost a grandparent, or it might be that they were hospitalized after a crash, or they lost function. These are the kinds of things that people have to adjust to, and it causes a stress response. When you're a child, if your family's chaotic, and more importantly, if your family has few coping skills, or you live in a neighborhood that's violent, or you see death as a child, then it's likely you're going to have a vagal nerve response, and that's when the physiology begins. And what happens during that process? Well, the vagal nerve uh, sends an alarm for the things that you see and smell and taste and hear and feel. And so it says, I'm in danger. And the fear from the hormone that's released, that is the adrenaline, Mm -hmm. uh, we also call it epinephrine, that fear that comes creates an anxiety. It causes your heart to race, your stomach to shut down, your eye pupils to get change, and it is specific to preserve your brain and heart because it's dangerous and your body's reacting to the fear. So if you carry that forward, the vagal nerve is considered reptilian. It is not going to respond um, to a thought necessarily, but it might respond if you had a smell that duplicated the original fear. So, for instance, let's say a grandmother was particularly abusive and wore a particular perfume, then the smell of that perfume might have your vagal nerve say, I recognize that, you're in danger, get away. And so it absolutely is the first step to the physiologic response that ends up causing anxieties, Um, and ultimately the health problems that follow. Are people able to identify later in life that any issues that they're having could be related back to something, or is is it common for them not even to realize? It is very common not to realize it because primarily the science is just evolving. 
So recently here at UAB, I was at a seminar about cancer and someone asked the questions on the Adverse Childhood Experience Survey. And what they found was those who had adverse childhood experiences did not fare as well as those who did not. And importantly, those who did the best were those who had the ability to have peer support, uh, transparency in their care, good family structures. They were able to eat well and exercise, and they had unconditional love, and they do the best. So how can we as nurses and healthcare providers identify people or work with them to give this trauma-informed care? Where do we even begin? Oh, well, that is multifaceted. I bet. <laughs> it starts with a system, and the system has to recognize that it must be safe, transparent, collegial, and collaborative, also providing things like um, a respect for the people they serve, uh, recognizing that there are our, we have personal biases, but importantly, we have our own traumas. And so when we get close to someone who has a similar trauma, it may force us to push them away. If we've done enough of the emotional work to recognize what triggers us, then we're more likely to move closer to someone and understand why they're being triggered. So if you think about the systematic changes that must occur, then you start to evaluate your systems and what your capacities are to create these environments that are trauma-informed for the patients that you serve. So it's a whole culture. It is a culture. Of course, I teach individual nursing students. So these students also have an opportunity through their life's journey where we have the responsibility at UAB School of Nursing to educate in a way that's trauma-informed to allow them to process some of these issues as they are studying them. And then to provide that so, the social support among their peers, um, with the faculty, also to provide that support with our structure, with student services and student success programs. So it starts even on our end before they even become nurses. Absolutely, it does. So, I mean, I just think it's a wonderful approach. Um, I said earlier before we even started right. the interview that, yeah, I think it's a good way to just treat each other in general. So I, I can see how that would make us better nurses and, you know, overall. So once we are nurses and I'm working a busy shift in the emergency room, for example, um, and a patient comes in, what are some specific interventions and things that our listeners might really be able to use immediately in approaching a patient in this way? Uh, interestingly, we have our style. And our style is not always conducive to people telling us what's really wrong. Mm -hmm. And so part of that means that we have to examine our style and then we have to examine why we do the way we do, the things we do, and then we have to make the changes that create safety for that patient, is transparent, so that that patient knows that I'm constantly responding to that patient's needs, that I, I see in their own anxiety when I mention something, if they have a wrinkled brow or some kind of query face, then I'm gonna to respond to that. Oh, I see that you have wrinkled your brow. Is there something that I said 
or is there something that you don't understand that I might be able to help you with? So it's in our approach. Granted, when you're in emergency, you've got to respond to the physical need first, but then they have family watching you, and that family is your patient, even though they haven't signed in, and they're going to have a traumatic reaction watching you do the things you have to do. So going to them afterwards, explaining why you did what you did, what you expected from that, and also attending to what their hope is, which is survival. Mm -hmm. And if survival is not possible, being there as they realize the potential outcome. You talk a lot about, um, and I've read a lot about, establishing that safe zone for the patient. And I think that goes along with what you're just saying so that perhaps they can open up to us. How do we how do we do that in the busyness of an emergency room or even a clinic setting um, of our everyday life? How do you go about establishing that safe zone and that trust that I think that you've told me we really need to, to have with our patient? I really appreciate that question because it's different for every patient. But I can tell you if the structure is not safe, then you have events that make the news. Mm. Someone gained access when they should not have, and then the outcome was poor. Um, then you have, um, if you're bringing them back for a, uh, let's just say, a, a breast examination, and the woman has been sexually abused as a child, the question is, is how you examine that breast, how you drape that patient, is that important? It very well may be. And that's why it's important to ask those questions early on in surveys that are routine. In fact, I've often said the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey and the subsequent studies that demonstrate adverse experiences in childhood need to be asked almost at every visit because you never know how that person's life experience is going. And it could be it was fine the last time you saw them, and then this time something happened. So let me give you an example. As a family nurse practitioner in a public health department, I had a patient who was in her 30s, overweight, um, had been abused as a child, parents were not married, uh, father was in jail. So you see the setup already. Mm -hmm. She was in foster care periodically. Now she's married to what she calls the love of her life. They have one son and the mother lives with them. Her blood sugars are too high today and she's coming in symptomatic. And so rather than slap her on insulin or a different medicine and say, see you in a week, I said, what's going on? You've always been controlled. And what I found out is her husband was in a robbery and shot, and now is a quad. Her grandmother, her mother, all have Alzheimer's, and they're become, the dementia is becoming a burden to her. And the son is a teenager now, being courted by gangs. As a healthcare provider, I did not have the skills to take care of all that. But what I did have is one of the trauma-informed care interventions I brought together the community to give her the support. It was the daycare center for Alzheimer's. It was the pastor to get the son so busy he couldn't be courted by gangs. It was the, um, it was the um, rehab that got the husband out every day 
to assist him in rehab. So um, there are things that required a social worker, mm -hmm. required community services, it required more than I could offer as a healthcare provider. But the connection was made because we had a patient advocate. And that, I think, is what trauma-informed care is all about. And we brought her blood sugars down and she stayed down because she had control over the situation that she lost control over right. before. Which is such a better solution than just upping her insulin, like you said, or changing, because do you think she would have maintained control with just that one intervention? No, in fact, she would have become our frequent flyers, someone who would have come back over and over again, begging for some solution to her problems external to her health. And she may not have even thought about that until you that's, brought it up. That's exactly right. But she trusted me because I had been seeing her for quite a while, mm -hmm. and she trusted me with the information. So what about the term non-compliant? <laughs> because that she could have been labeled. She would have been. If she didn't comply with your insulin changes without addressing all these other things, that's right. then she becomes that frequent flyer who's non-compliant. So what do you think... I already know, but tell us, tell everyone what you... <laughs> I have a problem with the term non-compliant because it puts us in an I position for the team mm -hmm. and there are no I's in team, the spelling. And so when we um, look at the word compliance, it is that we give them instructions and they either comply or they do not. Well, I like to consider my education and explanations and education of the patient, I like to consider it a smorgasbord of options that they can attach their activities to. One of them happens to be medication mm -hmm. and the side effects and things like that. But if you're gonna apply nursing science, what you're going to do is you're going to figure out that um, they have choice. And so I like the term, uh, they accepted my recommendations. I like the term, they, rather than non-compliant, that they are um, decline as yes. opposed to refuse. refuse. And the term decline says that they listen to me, they voice their understanding, and now they have an option to accept it based on their life journey and capacities. So let me give you an example of that. I had the insulin in my clinic to dispense to this woman. And I also taught her how and gave it her first doses to her. She accepted that, she learned it, and she took it fully knowing what the possibilities were for her to bring her sugars back in line, to get back on oral medication. She accepted, she did not decline my offer. Had she declined my offer to go on insulin, then the option provided to her might have been, I'd like to send you to the hospital where they can manage you. So she could either work with me here, she could go home and just struggle through the stress. That way she would be ensure that she would come back to the hospital, and I told her that. Or she could work with me today and I'd get her sugars down. Or that I could send her to the hospital where she could be in comfort and that they would do it without having her to learn this new material. But because of her commitment to her mother and her son, she wanted it to be done with that day. And as it turned out, it took a couple of hours to get it down, another three hours to 
to watch her because of the different right. effects of insulin, and then a, a pattern to teach her before she went home. And then my personal phone number in case she ran into problems. So that's what I'm talking about. It's a collaborative spirit in trauma-informed care. It is about uh, ensuring that that patient has the option to decline what I'm offering and that they know what the options are. What role does giving that kind of control play for your patients? I think, does that help them feel that they're in more control, being able to listen to you give these options and then choose? Does that have any place? In fact, there's a term in trauma-informed care called empowerment, and it does. It empowers them significantly to take control and to also know that we're here to help them when they are not in control and we give them those resources they need. How many times have you had a healthcare provider give you their personal number? Never. Never. It's one of the huge barriers that we have in healthcare is that they don't have someone to call. Even a system set up after hours that allows them to talk to someone that has access to their record, they don't have to repeat what happened to them, and they can provide that intervention for questions. That is a trauma-informed care system. Why do you think we are hesitant to provide that personal connection, that phone number? What, again, it's probably something to do with us and our fears or, or whatever. There are a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's about your personal time and setting boundaries, but many times it's systematic. So even in a root cause analysis, you're going to look at systems, mm -hmm. certain behaviors, uh, and if the culture becomes trauma-informed, then everyone's part of that team to support that patient. Right. And there shouldn't be anything to fear from it. Have you ever had a patient ab abuse your personal phone number? No. I wouldn't think so. No. I wouldn't think so. So again, you know, again, we're talking about having maybe a shortage of time. Mm -hmm. What can I say to a patient to let them know that I want to have that time? I want to have this transparency. I've got six other patients and I sense that they need more time. How do you handle a situation like that? Um, patient acuity has a whole lot to do with that. Mm -hmm. Because the patient, if you're in the emergency room and you're handling uh, five people from a car accident, uh, it's unlikely you're going to be able to provide anything except direct communication uh, that is factual, that actually controls uh, the environment to improve the health of that person who's in an emergent situation. However, taking the time to walk to the people who are watching, and they're always watching, um, and say, this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it, and we'd like some privacy, uh, can you re remove yourself from the room? There is someone waiting that can help you at the information desk. Go to the room where, where I know where you're going to be and I'll be out as soon as I can. That's the transparency. That's the predictability. That also says that I am concerned about this person right now at this situation. So let's extrapolate that to six patients on the floor. And six patients on the floor want to talk. Then you acknowledge boy, it sounds like you have something you'd like to tell me. I have other patients that, I ha that have more urgent needs right now, but I promise you I will be back and then give them a time. Okay. Give them a time. And if you don't make it back in that time, you've just destroyed their trust. 
So make sure that even between patients, I haven't finished yet, haven't forgotten you, I'm coming back. Communication is one of those other areas in trauma-informed care that must be a component. Now, in all that, think about the different variety of patients that you have, mm -hmm. different cultures, different races, different genders, and guess what? Your attitude toward the humanness of that person will be picked up because they have antenna. And if you're not genuinely caring, they'll know it. How do you become, how do you convey empathy? How do you, how do you, can you teach your nursing students empathy? Are we just born with it? You can teach it. You can teach it. And it starts with self-reflection and diaries of your own life, identifying those things that hurt you and those things that made you the most happy. And then sometimes it's just about being nice to people, having a smile on your face. It may be the first smile they've had. Think about this. The homeless patient that comes in the emergency department, and they are a train wreck, did you ever wonder who their mother was? Who played with them as a baby? That smiling baby looking at you with all wonder, trying to develop some level of trust with the world, and for them it didn't happen. And so they make it into their teen years, their behavior problems. That's where SAMHSA comes in. SAMHSA has TIP 57, and TIP 57 tells mental health providers how to create trauma-informed environments. Because what I know from the research is that trauma in childhood results at least in one mental health disease diagnosis by 18. So when you look at the women and men who are hospitalized for mental health problems, upwards to 90, 95% of them had early childhood trauma. That was significant without the support systems that we experience. We now have unfolding this decade, an awareness of human trafficking. Mm. The trauma experienced by individuals who've been human trafficked is measurable. And their recovery process is predicated on having trauma-informed care. And we better learn it because you're gonna get old one day too. <laughs> you may be in a car crash. Yeah. And if you have someone who doesn't understand the principles of trauma-informed care, an organization that hasn't implemented it, um, you're gonna have a difficult time in your recovery. So how does stress affect our views of trauma? You gave an example when we were talking and planning um, about President Bush that I thought was just a really great example, if you can yeah. tell that story. So let's go back to the beginning on this. Selyer, who was a scientist, behaviorist, mm -hmm. he observed enough people and in his own life had enough stress where he developed a, a four-staged stress response. And in his stress adaptation response, he discovered that there were, um, that there's an alarm phase, there's a recovery phase, then there's a adjustment phase, and then there is an exhaustion phase. When you're young, you have the best plasticity to be able to uh, overcome and overcome any of the stresses. We also talked about resilience. Resilience is not born. It is learned. 
and persons denied overcoming minor injuries are unprepared for major injuries and consequently they die. So let's look at um, President Bush. He's an older gentleman, been married a long time, love of his life dies. Given the stress response of her death, he did not have the reserves to overcome her death. He was hospitalized within a couple of weeks because his heart became irregular. And I'll talk about that in a minute about soldiers. His heart became irregular, they stabilized it, and he still died in a few more weeks. Mm. So what happened? Well, what happened was, is he didn't have the reserves to overcome, and he didn't have the desire. So let's look at the soldier's heart. Um, the soldier's heart, first described in the Civil War, uh, then it became shell shock in World War II, one and two, and then in Vietnam it became post-traumatic stress disorder. And today we have um, soldiers that are going back into combat over and over and over again. And so it's in these um, uh, studies about these soldiers that we've learned that their brains change. And in fact, how they view the world changes. You may remember when we first started talking, I talked about the vagal nerve. Well, the vagal nerve that's switched on and stays on, you're 12 months in an arena where you could be killed at any moment, even in your sleep, uh, turns that nerve on and you become hypervigilant and you begin to adjust to your new reality. You come home, it can't turn off. And so you go back because it's more comfortable to be in a war zone than it is here. So finally, they don't deploy you anymore. You become too old, you're too injured, etc. Where do you go? Suicide rates are huge in this population. So to explain it from a physiologic perspective, the vagal nerve was turned on. It never turns off until they find some way to share in groups, to have unconditional love and acceptance of their experience and behaviors. And also, um, they need to figure out what calms them down. So consequently, we borrowed science from other events and figured out that therapy animals work. Mm -hmm. Peer-to-peer -peer counseling works. Attending to basic needs work. So if you're on a very low income of the military and you miss your house payment, you lose your house. So now we have homes for the vets so that their stress levels are kept down. So let's talk about um, a person who has one event. And one event, and they have great family, everybody rallies around them, they're gonna overcome. If it happens again, they have experience, and they know the, what the steps are. So part of preparing a patient for overcoming is having them keep a journal. 
of their experience so they can reflect about it and talk about it. Talking about stress-related events is therapeutic, particularly when it is with someone who has unconditional acceptance and love. Also, the professional who can ask the right questions to move the person along in their understanding of what happened to them. So the three things that make people well are pretty simple. Cognitive behavioral therapy, social support, and good nutrition and exercise. Well, that's, I mean, it doesn't sound too hard. It doesn't, and yet it's very, very complex. Yeah. Very complex. The people who died after Katrina lost their social support system. Mm -hmm. it, was the, it was the fisher people, the people who had their boats who were alone. The elders died also because they didn't have the reserve. So think about it in terms of who's going to die after a assault or after an event like a car crash. Who's going to die? It will be those without reserve. So think about who has no reserve. Chronic stress. So it will be the child who's been in foster care their whole life, ended up homeless, picked up by a trafficker. You see where I'm going with this? I do. Okay, so the diseases they're gonna have are the big five. Morbid obesity, hypertension, stroke, diabetes. It's there, it's in front of us. And if we fail to give them the care they deserve, then they die. And that is with or without the medicine we give them. Wow, what an amazing discussion. We are already at about our 30 minutes. Okay. So what are just some resources for nurses who mm -hmm. want to know more about this and want to do better at their institutions with trauma-informed care? Well, first, <clears throat> there are a lot of forensic nurses around who understand this. Um, second, they can go to the literature and just Google CDC, Adverse Childhood Experiences, and look at the volume of research that is out there. Um, they also have the, the um, Adverse Childhood Experiences, but also they have an entire section on injury prevention so that there's tons of resources through the Center for Disease Control. Okay, then go to SAMHSA. SAMHSA has the basic behavioral health tip 57 that I talked about earlier that gives a foundation. And then there are any number of research articles listed for different populations that are benefiting because of trauma-informed care. If you wanna change your behavior, try going to cognitive behavioral therapy. Try reflection, try mindfulness. Have a good conversation with your best friend about what really happened to you in your life and see what happens. See if they support you because true friends will listen and accept you in spite of it and love you in spite of it and say, let's go out and celebrate you're here today. It is about making sure that everybody knows that they're valuable regardless of the place they are on their journey and with the trauma that they've experienced. They're still valuable human beings. I was gonna ask you for that, a takeaway, but I think that would be it. Yeah. Do you, anything the else? Takeaway, yeah. The takeaway for me mm -hmm. is that trauma-informed care creates an opportunity for reflection. 
but also to see the world differently as one that needs nursing more than ever. Thank you so much. You're very that welcome. Was so much, so much fun and so, so informative. I really, it has changed my thinking just reading about it and speaking with you about it. So I will carry that forward. Thanks for listening to Clinical Pearls from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. This podcast is also available in video form at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash nursing network.